Hello, I'm Vanessa Warren, and in this episode of Victorian Samplings, we invite you to indulge your bibliophilic tendencies. Anne Hung brings us an interview with Kirsten McLeod about some very special and costly custom-bound copies of Oscar Wilde's The Picture of Dorian Gray. We'll hear from Danae Dick, who shares her thoughts on the value of book plates and inscriptions. Danae takes a treasured copy of Coleridge's Aids to Reflection, held by the Armstrong Browning Library, as her case study. And we'll turn to librarian Elizabeth Bassett to learn about the scrapbooks and friendship albums Victorian creators made, and about her work on a digital exhibit dedicated to them. Join us as we explore the material history of some beautiful and one-of-a-kind books. I am joined by Dr. Kirsten McLeod, a reader in modernist print culture at Newcastle University. Kirsten's research explores the relationship between decadence and modernism. Welcome, Kirsten. Thank you very much, Anne. Great to be here. Great to have you. We are talking today about different editions of a well-known book by a well-known author, The Picture of Dorian Gray by Oscar Wilde. Many of our listeners will be familiar with The Picture of Dorian Gray and might remember that Dorian is himself a collector of beautifully bound books. Could you tell us a bit about this late Victorian novel and also perhaps about the revival of interest in the early 20th century? Sure. About the novel, of course, it's an iconic text of British decadence, about a young man's obsessive desire to preserve his youth and beauty. I'm sure we can all understand that. He makes a mad wish to stay young and that his portrait will show the signs of his age. He is corrupted first by a man, Lord Henry, and then poisoned by a book, one that is loosely based on J.K. Huisman's Arbour, which is itself a French novel, often called the Bible of Decadence. And this poisonous book serves as a model for Dorian's pursuit of a hedonistic lifestyle that sees him becoming a seeker after strange experiences and a collector of fine things, including, as you've mentioned, and books. And of course, it ended up famously being used as evidence of Wilde's homosexuality in, in his trial. The prosecutor suggested that the novel was a perverted novel, much like the novel that Dorian Gray reads in the book in the book itself. Speaking to the revival of Dorian Gray in the early 20th century, Wilde's popularity in this period can be understood in the context of a broader revival of the 1890s and an interest in decadence in, in the post-war period, a period itself that was considered an era of new decadence, you know, the 20s, the jazz age. So there's writers and artists who are looking back to the 1890s for uh, artistic inspiration and writing works in that style. So, so that's the context in which Dorian Gray regains a kind of popularity. So sharing this interest in the revival of Wild and Decadence were a number of um, active French bibliophile societies. I was wondering if you could tell us what the purpose of these societies was and how their activities brought about the two very different findings of the same 1928 French illustrated Dorian that you studied. Book collecting and bibliophilia has a long history in France, and there was an important transition in collecting practices, but also in the book arts around the 1870s and 1880s that kind of inform 
the period that we're considering in the 1920s. The shift was brought about by social and cultural factors, but also by the impact of mechanization in book production. So we have the emergence of a new cultural elite, eager to assert their cultural distinction, and they call themselves the new bibliophiles. So the new bibliophiles are interested in modern literature, they're interested in the avant-garde, they're interested in new art movements, and they want to bring together you know, modern and avant-garde literature with modern artistic design. So they established bibliophile societies to produce deluxe limited editions of text. These bibliophiles saw themselves as artists themselves, creators, collaborators in the artistic process. So you might be asking now, well, what about the binding? And it might seem somewhat strange that the binding of these deluxe editions is a completely separate artistic process. So these deluxe editions were always published with paper covers for their own editions. So this is what's really distinctive, I think, about French bibliophiles. I mean, a lot of collectors get their own books bound, but it's very, very distinctive in the French context. So that publishers wouldn't even bother at all to think about the binding. They weren't responsible. The owner would, would make those choices. So that means that every single copy of this small print run then is itself unique within an already unique run. So for this 1928 French illustrated edition, you found two different bindings that are about as different as two bindings could be for the same book. We'll link to images of these bindings on our episode page, but could you tell us a bit about each of them and what we can learn about this text from a closer examination of them? So this edition of Dorian Gray was published by a publisher bookseller called Émile Chamontin, who specialized in what were called livres d'art, so art books. He published under the name of the Société d'édition Le Livre. This wasn't really a bibliophile society as far as I could tell from my research, but obviously with that title, the Société d'édition Le Livre, he's riffing on that concept, and he's certainly following the traditions of, of those publications. So the ones that I found really intriguing were two by women, actually. Bookbinding was taken up by women in the 19th and 20th centuries in an amateur and also in professional capacities. The first of the ones that I am going to try to describe is one by um, Madeleine Gras. I think that her binding is probably roughly contemporaneous with the publication of the book. We can't always be sure of when the binding was executed. But this one is definitely a 1920s style. It's very Art Deco in style. It's a plum-colored Morocco leather. There's a frame of turquoise leather tooled in gold. And at each corner of the cover, there's a delicate mauve inlay, which is the kind of outline of a, a bow shape. So what do I want to say about that, that design and, and what it might tell us and what it's trying to communicate symbolically? Well, I think that overall, the design feels very fresh. It feels very 1920s. It feels very Noel Coward and cocktails. That's what it makes you think of. So it's a kind of light, hedonistic, rah-rah jazz age decadence, I would say, rather than, rather than the darker decadence that's actually depicted in the novel. It removes it from the 1890s context in the, in the sense that it makes it more contemporary. It's recuperating the novel as a kind of modernist neo-decadent text. 
The second binding is by a woman called Louise Levesque, and this binding dates sometime between 1933, when she was active, and, and 1938, when we know it was sold at an auction with that binding. This is a much simpler binding. It's all plum-colored, Morocco leather again. The inner lining itself is red leather with gold tooling. And the image on this binding is a very sad image. It's the head of a man from the chest up, and this is incised into the leather, black-tooled. He is covering his face with his hands. He's wearing something that looks like a robe with lines crisscrossing at the front. And we might think that, that's, that the rope is kind of binding the figure. This binding also reflects the spirit of the novel, but in a darker, darker way. So we might take this man to be wild. The hairstyle kind of looks like it could be wild, or we might take it to be Dorian Gray, or both, in fact. So overall, I think this design is a reminder of the kind of autobiographical readings that the novel was given right from, you know, that trial on. So the wild trials that read homosexuality into the text, but also the kind of autobiographical readings that are promoted by Wilde himself in some sense when he said that he identified with all the characters in the book. Basil Howard is what I think I am, Lord Henry is what the world thinks me, and Dorian is what I would like to be in other ages perhaps. So there's various ways we can, we can take this binding as reflecting different types of autobiographical readings. Certainly the autobiographical context for Dorian Gray was an integral part of the reception of the novel in France and also Wilde's own cultural status there. So to summarize, both these bindings, I think, tell us something about the meanings of Wilde's text in a broader cultural sense. Well, thank you so much, Kirsten, for joining me today and sharing your knowledge with us. Thank you very much, Anne. Hello there. I'm Danae Dick. I recently completed my PhD from the University of Victoria, where I teach as a sessional instructor for the Department of English and the Academic and Technical Writing Program. I'm delighted to be speaking on the Victorian Samplings podcast, and I want to share about some of my discoveries resulting from my time as a visiting scholar at the Armstrong Browning Library at Baylor University a couple of years ago. There are many treasures at the Armstrong Browning Library, but I'm focusing on one in particular, uh, and that is uh, the copy of Samuel Taylor Coleridge's book, Aids to Reflection, owned by George MacDonald. George MacDonald is uh, most known today for his fantasy literature for children. Uh, some folks may have read The Princess and the Goblin or At the Back of the North Wind. MacDonald is still somewhat marginalized in literary studies today, but he had a tremendous influence on the writers associated with the literary group known as the Inklings. So C.S. Lewis, J.R.R. Tolkien, uh, many other books that we do read uh, more often today. What attracted my interest in this particular volume was the marginalia and the bookplate in the front matter. 
So the volume's half title page is inscribed Louisa Powell and dated November 5th, 1847. Uh, this was Louisa's 25th birthday. And at that time, she and MacDonald were courting. They were married a few years later in 1851. Below the title, there is a handwritten sonnet addressed to Louisa by MacDonald. It's quite moving, and it addresses some of the artistic and theological issues related to mystery and mortality that we can see throughout MacDonald's published works. And then the other thing inside the volume's front cover uh, that really fascinates me is the bookplate of Greville Matheson MacDonald, who was the eldest son of Louisa and George. They had a total of 11 children, uh, and George was the fourth in this line. The bookplate adapts William Blake's illustration, Death's Door, which depicts a muscular young man seated on top of a cavernous entryway. And there's also an old man who makes his way across the threshold. This book is fascinating to me for a number of reasons. The book contributes to biographical and, I think, textual criticism on MacDonald. And it also shows us some interesting insights about reading as a material practice. The practice of using book plates in Britain goes back to at least the 16th century, and it was still very vital in the Victorian era. Uh, some great places to go if people are interested in learning more about book plates. Uh, there's a section of the website, the Victorian Web, devoted to book plates, uh, as well as the website, bookplatesociety.org. There tends to be consistency in book plate style within a family. Oftentimes, the design will feature something like a coat of arms. And so the similarity between the book plate of George MacDonald and the one used by his son Greville is perhaps not as unusual as one might think. When I first picked up McDonald's copy of AIDS to Reflection, I expected and even kind of hoped for some rigorous intellectual commentary where I wanted to see a little marginal debate going on between McDonald and Coleridge. And, you know, to some extent, that is the kind of marginalia that I found in some of the ABL's other rare book holdings. But in the case of George MacDonald's copy of AIDS to Reflection, the difference between the kind of marginalia that I had expected and the kind of marginalia that I found led me to realize that I had perhaps a, constructed a potentially limiting idea of how and why MacDonald would read and value this book. Uh, and so I had to reckon with the prospect that this copy of AIDS to Reflection was not just a matter of intellectual exchange, but also a physical object that was a treasured possession passed on from generation to generation, something that MacDonald might value not merely because of its ideas, but because of his memories of reading this book in relation with uh, those with whom he was very close. MacDonald's copy illuminates the full-bodied experience of reading by prompting us to remember that this kind of textual encounter involves not only the head, but also the heart and the hand. 
The marginalia and the handwritten sonnet uh, that's written out uh, gives us an opportunity to think about uh, the way that McDonald's ideas are expressed, not only in terms of the words, but also their arrangement on the page. We get a sense of personality that emerges through the handwriting. This book has obviously been rebound, and so the first few letters of each line are difficult to read. While I was at the ABL, I did have some help uh, from manuscript specialist Dr. Melinda Creech uh, with the transcription, uh, and the sonnet uh, reads something like this. Whether this day on earth shall often be, I have no wish that I can make for thee, nor will I wish thee ever cloudless years. Why wish thee that which cannot be? I know that as the sun must shine, so clouds must grow. And as our being is, so are our tears. And one who hath given thanks for sorrow's hour may never pray thou shouldst not know its power. Yet there is one thing I can wish for thee, that the unbounded promise may be thine when all things in one providence combine. Sorrows and joys in, in glorious unity but bright or dark, unknown or understood, all things work together for thy good. So we have a version of a Shakespearean sonnet that ends in a closed couplet. And this fixed form is really finely crafted in terms of line length and the patterning of the rhyme. But looking at the physical copy, you also see the care that is taken with the way that the sonnet has been so neatly transcribed uh, and centered so beautifully on the title page. So there's an element of craftsmanship that comes across not only in the intellectual design of the sonnet form, but also in the material design of the way that uh, this moment, uh, this moment of intimacy really between MacDonald and Louisa is also preserved on the page. I was really struck that these markers of long-standing and affectionate use appear in Coleridge's Aids to Reflection of all books. However, in the 19th century, Aids to Reflection was one of the most widely read and widely republished of Coleridge's works. And basically, it's a collection of aphorisms from 17th century theologians of Robert Layton and Henry Moore, primarily, along with Coleridge's own commentary. And these aphorisms can range from pithy statements that are sort of proverbial in their force uh, to longer, more narrative vignettes. And I think the kind of interpretive model that we see in Aids to Reflection is really interesting, especially when we situate it within historical context and think about other models of reading that were dominant in the Victorian era. Many other 19th century thinkers emphasized that right reading involves a kind of historical recovery of authorial intent. And MacDonald's own prose writings show that he followed Coleridge in placing less emphasis on authorial intent and more emphasis on reader response. And I think that marginalia, such as the sonnet that we see in the inside front cover, as well as uh, the book plate that shows evidence of this volume being passed on through generations, uh, gives us a more fully orbed sense of that element of, of reader response. Andrew Stoffer from the University of Virginia has a fascinating project, Book Traces, that's been ongoing for some time. Uh, and he recently published a book with the University of Pennsylvania Press. Uh, but the emphasis of this project is all about 
reading 19th century literature through the lens of the objects and the other materials, inscriptions, annotations, insertions left by readers. Uh, and I think especially in this age where we're giving a lot of emphasis to digitization, uh, it's important to remember and reflect on the value of physical books and what they can tell us about how 19th century readers used these books. Thanks to Danae for sharing her insights with us and for encouraging us to think about, among other things, the book plates we encounter in previously owned books. We hear now from Elizabeth Bassett, a Special Collections and Digital Access Assistant at the University of Victoria Libraries. I interviewed Elizabeth about her digital exhibit, Yes, This Is My Album, Victorian Collections of Scraps, Signatures, and Seaweed. Here's our conversation. Welcome, Elizabeth. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to talk with you about your exhibit. We've put a link on our episode page to the exhibit for listeners who might want to explore its treasures as we talk. Can you tell us about some of the materials we'll see and learn about when we make a virtual visit? Yeah, for sure. Um, so my exhibit features a variety of digitized versions of Victorian era scrapbooks that are housed at the University of Victoria Libraries, Special Collections and University Archives. When I was planning and researching for the exhibit, I realized that the chosen scrapbooks fell into three broad categories. So there's traditional scrapbooks, there's autograph albums and seaweed albums. So my exhibit is divided into three sections, one for each of these categories. And then throughout, there's the main narrative, and viewers will find digitized images of the scrapbooks. And then the narrative features information from Victorian-era manuals and newspapers, just to provide contextual information about why they were made and how they were made. I should also say that my, my exhibit allows viewers to browse digitized scrapbooks in their entirety as well. I am one of the viewers who browsed some digitized scrapbooks, and I was really taken, Elizabeth, with the autograph albums. Could you tell us a little more about them? Yeah, I love those ones too. They're really beautiful. Victorians were really interested in handwriting and what different handwriting styles might reveal about the writer. So there's sometimes articles that talked about if you have sloppy handwriting, this is what it means about you. If it's really neat, this is what it means about you. So in my research, I did find actually several Victorian articles that were about how you might read different types of handwriting, and they'd give examples from Charlotte Bronte and George Eliot and say, oh, this is what it means about them. Um, so it kind of makes sense then that people started collecting sort of snippets of handwriting, whether it was someone's specific autograph or if it was like a letter, and they would collect them in autograph albums. And they, there's sort of, sometimes this was for people had like a historical benefit in mind, or they just were fascinated by it themselves. And then there's also two kinds of Victorian autograph albums I found. So sort of one is the celebrity autograph album where people would collect signatures and other snippets of handwriting by celebrities and generally well-known figures if they could find them. And then I guess these are interesting too, just how people collected them. So sometimes people would 
they would carry their albums around with them, and if they happened to see a celebrity, they would go up to them and ask them to sign, and celebrities complained about this a lot. And then sort of the more common way was to actually write to celebrities and ask them to send you a signature. The second type of autograph album that I feature in the exhibit are friendship albums, and these were actually probably the most popular type of autograph album at the time. These are really similar to modern-day yearbooks, so when you would get your friends to sign at the end of the year and they would put little, like, just little snippets of writing for you, so this is what these were like. At the time, people would pass autograph albums around to their friends and family, and sort of at the very least you would put your signature, but more often people would write poetry, they would draw pictures, there was all these trends that you could see in them. I would say they're like an uh, early form of social media. I, I wondered if we could talk about a specific example from your exhibit of a friendship album. I was really taken with Lillian Kidman's album, and I was wondering if I could impose on you to read some inscriptions from that album. Maybe we could start with Kidman's own welcoming entry. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love that album. It's really beautiful. So just for some context, we don't really know a lot about Lillian Kidman. Um, when I was describing the scrapbooks, I did a bit of research, but really all we know about her is that she was the eldest daughter of a farming family in Hertfordshire. So on the title page of her album, Lillian Kidman wrote this poem. Yes, this is my album, but learn ere you look that all are expected to add to my book. You are welcome to quiz it. The penalty is that you add your own picture for others to quiz. This poem really struck me, and it was actually the poem that inspired the title of the exhibit. I think there is really something that struck me about how the poem simultaneously declares ownership and invites collaboration. And I hadn't really thought about scrapbooks in that collaborative sense. And then it was actually, I would say, a couple months after I gave the exhibit a title that I realized that the poem is not unique <laughs> to Lillian Kidman's album. And I didn't realize that at first, but it's actually, I saw an example of it in another scrapbook that I was looking at, and then I looked up the poem, and then I realized that it was pre-printed into albums at the time. So that was really interesting. Just for another example of an inscription that I thought was really interesting, I decided to end my exhibit with a poem that appears at the very end of Lillian Kidman's album, and this inscription was written by a friend of hers. So it goes like this. When I am dead and in my grave and all my bones are rotten, take up this book and think of me when I am quite forgotten. And this particular poem really struck me because it's another one that was commonly inscribed in either albums or in books that people gave each other as gifts, and it really speaks to the, this idea that when people were creating scrapbooks, they had this idea that it would um, outlive them and that it would be evidence of their lives. And so there's something, although these scrapbooks are very... They're very personal. There's something sort of not private about them, which they expect other people in their lives, but also in the future to read them. And that was very interesting to me. I was really interested in the creativity that the people who made these scrapbooks demonstrated. And one of the practices that you've explored, and, and I've been inspired to try myself 
after visiting your exhibit is the creation of inkblot signatures. Yeah, I was so excited when I first saw these because I'd never seen an example of this before. So I was looking at the Lillian Kidman album and an album that her sister made and realized that on several of the pages, there was these ink blots and they looked like Rorschach tests, if anyone's familiar with those. And I just never sort of seen that in a scrapbook before. So maybe what I'll do is I'll explain Um, how they were made, and then I think listeners will get a better idea of what these look like. So what people would do at the time was they would fold paper over, and then they would unfold it so they had a signing line. And then with a pen, a very inky pen, they would sign their names, and then they would fold it over again, and then reopen it again so that it's just there's ink all over the page. And it really looks kind of ghostly. It's like a skeleton. Um, And then, of course, everyone's signature and their inkblot signature is unique. So people would actually collect these. They collected these in albums. It was really interesting from celebrities and from their friends. I decided when I saw them that I wanted to try them. So I actually found um, there's a book from 1905, which is when they really reached popularity. And it's by Cecil Henland, and it's called The Ghost of My Friends. And it was an autograph book that people could purchase, and it gives you instructions for making inkblot signatures. And then it gives you pages where you can go and get your friends to fill it out. Anyways, you can you can look for this book on on Google Books. It's out there available and free and you can follow the instructions and it's really fun. You can you can make your own inkblot signatures. I've used ink in a dip pen, but watercolors is great and it's just a fun a fun activity to try. <laughs> Elizabeth, you've been working with an extraordinary collection of scrapbooks. I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you if you have a favorite. It's actually really tricky because they're all so interesting or beautiful for different reasons. I do really love the Lillian Kidman album that we've talked about in this interview, especially in combination with her sister's autograph album. So there's a matching one that's also featured in the exhibit. And then there's also, if this one's not in the exhibit, but Uvic also holds a third family album of theirs, and it's their family art scrapbook. And so just looking at those three together is really interesting and just reminds you about how this work was collaboratively done and kept up over years of their lives, too. And then aside from that, there's the Edward Merle Holmes seaweed album, and that one's really beautiful. Just dry, It has dried seaweed and it has all their scientific names. So aesthetically, I really love that one as well and would also love to try um, seaweed collecting and making a seaweed album at some point. What do you think we can learn from scrapbooks, from these homemade, one-of-a-kind objects, Elizabeth? That's a great question, and I've been thinking about it a little bit. And I think with these scrapbooks, what really strikes me about them is that They were created by everybody, right? They were created by everyone, and they could make them however they wanted. They could could put scraps in them. They could draw in them. And so I think it's just this creative record of how people wanted to be remembered themselves. And I think that's just a really, that's a really unique thing you can find in scrapbooks. It's not people deciding how to write about them in books. It's literally these people that were 
creating their own records very intentionally and for their own purposes, but also for the sake of being remembered. Thanks so much for joining us, Elizabeth. Thanks so much for having me. If you're inspired by this episode to make your own one-of-a-kind album or perhaps to experiment with skeleton signatures, head over to the Create page of craftingcommunities.net. You'll find a wonderful scrapbooking tutorial developed by Elizabeth in collaboration with Heather Dean, the Associate Director of Special Collections at the University of Victoria Libraries. And while you're on the Crafting Communities website, be sure to visit the Victorian Things exhibit, an exploration of Victorian material culture that pairs images with expert analysis. Thank you to guests Kirsten McLeod, Danae Dick, and Elizabeth Bassett for their contributions to this episode. And thank you to student team members Jesse Cron and Anne Hung for their wonderful work creating segments for this episode. Thank you to Natalie Lovetri for her transcription, and thank you to Madison George Burlett for her digital media work. Victorian Samplings was recorded and produced on the territory of the Lekwungen and Sinchothan speaking communities of the Songhees, Esquimo, and Wasanich peoples, and on Treaty 1 territory, traditional land of the Anishinaabe, Cree, Oji Cree, Dakota, and Dene peoples, and homeland of the Métis Nation. We welcome your feedback. Please email us at crafting at uvic.ca and follow us on Twitter at craftyvictorian. Crafting Communities is supported by the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada, the Victorian Studies Association of Western Canada, and the Universities of Alberta, Manitoba, and Victoria. The project is a collaboration between Andrea Corda, Mary Elizabeth Layton, and me, Vanessa Warren. Thanks so much for listening.